Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast. For more information about Grace Harvest Church or to find out more about something you hear during the podcast, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you through this week's message. We've been doing a series called The Road, and this time, at this time, we're concentrating on the cross and the road up to the cross, and this week's message is called Memorials to Sacrificial Love. Memorials to Sacrificial Love. Today's what's known on the church calendar all around the world as Palm Sunday. Y'all know about Palm Sunday, right? We celebrate and memorialize when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey while the crowd sang out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord which incidentally means come and save us, come and rescue us. Many churches around the world will worship today with palm branches in their hands as they remember the event. The crowds that welcomed Jesus laid their cloaks on the road and waved palm branches and laid them on the road, and they cried out, Oh, come, King, save us, Son of David, save us. And then, interestingly enough, within days... Another crowd, some of which would have been those people crying Hosanna, cried out, crucify him. And today what we're going to look at is we're going to look at the events that transpired after Hosanna and before crucify him. We're going to look at the events in the middle and what led up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We're going to see that Jesus was on the road of sacrificial love and that road of sacrificial love was for you and I. We're going to personalize it. We're going to look at several events, and we're going to actually look at what I will call memorials to the death of Jesus and what they mean for us, and, and um, we're going to have the opportunity to thank God as we think about some symbols and how powerful they are and what they mean for us. Before we do that, though, I want to show you a video, and the reason I want to show this video is because it, it perfectly lays out for us what Israel was hoping for, what you and I are hoping for, and what we need in having Jesus as a Messiah as having him as a savior king, a Messiah, one who comes to rescue us from our sins. So are we ready to go on the video? We are. Make sure the volume's up. There's this crazy and let's story this. at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake and it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives, even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, 
God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil and that it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends and the snake crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus's power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. Isn't that powerful? 
So that kind of gives you a broad overview of the story of the Scripture and starts right in Genesis chapter 3 with a promise that there will come a man, the seed of the woman, who will crush the head of the serpent, but his heel will be bitten or bruised. And we see that, that fulfilled throughout the entirety of the Scripture and come to its full fulfillment within the person of Jesus Christ. Well, today, after looking at the Messiah, I want to talk about some memorials connected to the Messiah and who He is, the one who gave His, his self for us. And uh, I want to first start out by defining the word memorial before we get into some of these particular events. A memorial is something, especially a structure or some kind of public memento that is established to remind people of a person or an event. And we see throughout the Scripture there are these symbols, these memorials that God had His people set up. There's a time when they crossed the Jordan River and God said, go into the middle of the Jordan River to the priests and, and gather up 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes and then set them up in the midst of the river and I'm going to roll the river back and that memorial's going to sit there and even though people aren't going to see it because the river's going to come and flood it eventually, it's going to be there forever. I'll know it's there and my people will know it's it's there. They'll always know that I parted this river and I let you go over on dry land. And we see over and over in the Bible, people, God's people setting up memorials to remind them of the goodness of God. Well, I want to talk about some memorials, five of them, that show us who Jesus is and point us to his sacrificial love. And my first memorial is a broken jar of perfume. And I call it a memorial of forgiven worship. A memorial of forgiven worship. Matthew chapter 26 is where I'm going to be today. So if you've got a Bible, turn over to Matthew 26. And I'm going to be looking at verses 6 through 13 here. We're going to actually read quite a bit of Scripture. And that's good. How many of you like to read the Bible? Hopefully this isn't the only time you read the Bibles when you gather with your people on Sunday. Matthew 26, 6. Remember, these are the last days of Jesus. And it says here, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. The first thing we see about this story is, you know, Jesus is reclining at table and this woman comes in with very expensive perfume. And at that time, the flask it would have been in could not be opened unless it was broken. There was a sealed top on it and she would have bro- it would have been broken and then poured on Jesus and it would have been very, very expensive perfume. In fact, Mark's gospel tells us that it was worth 300 denarii. That's a year of wages. So take your salary right now, the salary of an average worker in Moses Lake, I don't know what that would be, and that's how much this perfume cost. 
And she took a year's worth of her life. It's as though she's saying, everything I've worked for in the last year, my entire life, I'm pouring it on you, Jesus. I'm pre-. And she didn't even know she was preparing him for his death. And this woman was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. She'd been forgiven of much and was the thankful recipient of forgiveness. Other Gospels tell us that Jesus even points this out, that she loved much because she was forgiven much. And, you know, this is what I I share with you all the time about worship. When I preach here, I, I remind you that worship is our response to God. Worship isn't us trying to move God, or it's not us trying to twist His arm behind His back. Worship, and I don't just mean when we sing to God on Sundays, I mean our entire life, how we serve others, what we do on our jobs, what we do as we go about the normal, average, mundane tasks of life. All of it, biblically speaking, is worship to God. We're to live our life as though every moment is a drink offering poured out for Him. Our bodies, our minds, our imaginations, everything about us belongs to God. We've been purchased with precious blood. He poured out His life for us, and so our life to Him is a response. So even when we gather here on Sundays, and I'm often challenging you to worship God with all your heart and to show your expression to Him, and I'm I'm encouraging you, come on, let your heart be moved. The point I'm trying to get you to see is you've been forgiven much, you've been loved much, you've experienced the goodness of God in every part of your life, even if you're suffering, even if you're going through difficulty, you're loved and embraced by God, and that love is is responsive. We, We have to give back to Him because so much has been given to us. That's what worship is. It's a response. And she saw it. She got it. I'm forgiven. I've been forgiven of so much. What else can I do but give a year of my life right now? I'm going to pour out a year of my life on the feet and on the head of Jesus. And this memorial, this act of worship has been preserved forever, just as Jesus said it would in the Bible for us to read. Can you imagine, just for a minute, think about it. Think about having your name in the Bible. The most read book in human history has a certain number of people within it who have their names memorialized. This woman has her name memorialized in the Bible because she worshipped Jesus responsively. She poured out on His feet that which He deserved. The second memorial I want to talk about is 30 pieces of silver. It's what I call a memorial of greed and redemption. Matthew 26, 14 through 16 says this, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. Did you know that? Exodus 21, 32 says this, If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. And the measurement of a shekel ended up becoming equivalent to a coin. And so at that time, if a person had a servant that worked for them, and that servant was injured or killed by an oxen or another animal, they were only worth 30 shekels of silver, 30 pieces of silver. 
the price of betrayal, and I think it's interesting if you think about it, this directly follows a woman giving a year of wages in worship. And what we see is that the price of worship far exceeds the little pittance that we give when it comes to betrayal. Betrayal's cheap. It's cheap. It's always much less than worship. Mary was willing to pour out her very best while Judas was willing to accept very little to betray a friend. And I want you to think about your own life. Many times when we betray the very people we love, we get so little in return. To harbor anger, to get them back, to get the cheap satisfaction of being right, we'll betray the very ones we love. As Judas did, we'll often betray our relationship with Jesus for even less. You say, I I don't do that. What are you talking about? Well, just think about it. Think about the times in your life when you faced those moments and those decisions where you knew what the right thing to do was, where you knew what God was calling you to do, when you knew that at that moment, I shouldn't do this, right? I shouldn't take that bottle. I, I shouldn't do that on my work records. I shouldn't tell that little, what we call little white lie, which is a deception, Right? I mean, those moments in our life when the main, and what are we trying to preserve? That people will think we're cool. That we'll think, people will think we're right. That we won't bring displeasure to anyone. That we won't potentially lose our job or we won't make somebody mad. We will betray relationships. We'll betray our love for God for the smallest thing. And at that moment, we don't realize it because we often look at Judas or we look at Peter. We look at betrayers and deniers in the Bible and we say, man, those people were terrible. How could they do that? He worked miracles in front of them and yet he's worked miracles in front of us. He's saved us. He's rescued us from damnation. He's loved us. He's cleansed us. He's done so much for us. And yet in a, in a moment of pressure, we're willing to sell out for nothing. Wow. Wow. As Judas did, we'll betray Jesus for even less, right? The beautiful thing, though, is that Jesus was betrayed so we could be redeemed. Now, think about this, the price of a slave. He bought us back, the word redeem, the word redemption, the idea that you and I can be redeemed. Think about redemption. Redemption is to take a slave off the slave block, buy him, and then set him or her free, right? And that's what redemption is, and that's what Jesus did for us. He bought us back from our slavery to sin so we could be free. We betray him for so little, he redeems us for so much. He redeemed us with blood. There's nothing more precious than blood, right? Blood is life. When we have communion, we're we're recognizing you poured out your life. You broke your body. You did it willingly. You did it with joy and with pleasure ultimately. Yes, you suffered in it, but the Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 12 that for the joy set before Him, it's like Jesus looked out and He saw a bride, He saw a body, He saw people, and He said, you're worth it. And He looked out and redeemed. He bought us. And that takes me to the third symbol, a crowing rooster, a memorial of pride and denial. Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 through 35, and 69 through 75, this is really powerful. You'll know the story. It says, then Jesus said to them, you'll all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. 
But after I am raised up, I will go before you to to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, you can see the chest going out, I will never fall away. Think of a rooster. It's ironic, isn't it? And we're going to talk about that. Though everybody else deny you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. We often forget that. And all the disciples said the same. Verse 69, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you, were, you also were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth, and again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man, and he swore. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. He was from Galilee. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, and he went out and wept bitterly. Bold proclamations of loyalty, and then three denials and a crowing rooster. Roosters are proud chickens. I was looking up video clips, I really was, I was looking up video clips of roosters last night. I wanted to put one up. But I couldn't find the right one because I really wanted to have one that was strutting really big, putting its chest out, and it was, you know, I wanted good quality. I didn't want it to be grainy. And I saw this, this compilation of all these different kinds of roosters, and they're crowing. And man, they're just, you know, you know and, they're, and they got, you know, different pitches. And it, I, I watched it. I was cracking up, and I thought, isn't it ironic? Peter's crowing. Peter's strutting. Peter's proclaiming his loyalty, and then the Lord uses a crowing rooster to remind him that he's really just a chicken, right? And that's, you know, a lot of times we make bold proclamations. I've heard people over the years say, I die for Jesus. I'm like, "Eh, don't be so sure. A lot of Christians through history didn't. We talk about the martyrs, we don't talk about the deniers. Because we never know ourselves until the moment the squeeze comes on, right? The squeeze comes on and all of a sudden our true heart is revealed. So the only way we'll ever know really if we can die for Jesus is if we learn day by day to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and die, right? And in dying, we live. But we have to practice. See, every day is practice. Every day is practice for our loyalty to God. Every decision, every moment is practice. That's why we need the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to follow the Lord because it's impossible to follow Him in obedience in our own strength. And that's why bold proclamations of our own loyalty about God, they don't go very far because in the moment of testing, in the moment of trial, when we face that moral dilemma, we find out the true state of our heart. 
Will we go the Lord's way or not? And it was really good for Peter to see. Let me tell you, if you've ever gone through a moment where you fell flat on your face and you failed as bad as you can fail and you made a fool of yourself and all the things you said you would never do, you did and it shattered and it broke you. You went through the most wonderful thing you can go through because those things kill self-confidence and teach us that we have to have God to live the way He wants us to. It's good for us. When I hear people talk about how spiritual they are, how holy they are, how they got it together, how great they are, and I get nervous for them. I start thinking, woo, doggy. I hear a rooster. And there's a moment coming, and it comes to all of us. We'll face them multiple times in our life where our true nature will be tested. It's so good for us that we go through that breaking and that shattering and that our pride gets dealt with. And we learn humility because humility is beautiful. Humility is attractive. Humility draws the presence of God. Humility attracts His grace. But when we're like talking about how great we are and how we got it together, we're repulsive to God. We don't realize that. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Isn't it good? Now, here's the thing. Peter proclaimed his loyalty and then denied We're often like Peter, one minute proclaiming our devotion and then denying Him by the way we speak and live. But even though we deny Him, and even though we lose faith, He pursues and restores us just like He did Peter. And you might remember in John chapter 21, at the end of the chapter, Jesus meets Peter and the disciples. He's on a beach and He's made them lunch. And it's beautiful. He's made him lunch. He's sitting there cooking. Imagine that. The resurrected Jesus. He's cooking lunch for him. And they're out there fishing. And they come in. They bring their fish in with them. And, you know, Peter's blown away by who he is. And and Peter and Jesus go for a walk. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? And he asks him three times. How many times did he deny him? How many times did he ask him if he loved him? And it wasn't Jesus like making him feel bad and pointing out his sin. That's not what the Lord was doing. The Lord was letting him know. He was restoring him. He was letting him know because Peter was like, yes, Lord, you know I love you in a brotherly kind of love. Jesus said, Peter, do you love me with the love of God, the sacrificial love of God? Peter's answer is, Lord, you know I love you with a brotherly kind of love. And so Jesus keeps asking him. Instead of Peter boldly proclaiming how much he loves Jesus, his love is tentative. He's not sure. He's like, Lord, I don't really know if I have the kind of love that I need to have for you. And Jesus reinstates him. It's as though Jesus is walking him through a process of showing him self-confidence is over for you, Peter. And he does the same thing in our lives. And we don't recognize it as a blessing because it's so painful. It's painful when you die. It's painful when you're crushed. It's painful when you fail. It's painful when people see your weakness, when, when you fall on your face. It's painful, but it's so, so good for you. Because out of that, out of that dust, out of that brokenness, the true you that God designed you to be will rise. And that's a beautiful you. You with me? And then the kiss of Judas a memorial of betrayal. Think about these, a kiss, a rooster. They all mean so much. Verse 47, and while he was still speaking, Judas came 
one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs and the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. The kiss of Judas redefined the kiss. A sign of love in that culture they would kiss. I remember years ago I did a wedding for a Brazilian family and um, my, my, my nephew with Portuguese background and he married a Brazilian girl and there were all these Brazilian people there. I jokingly told my wife that day, I said, I've never been kissed by more pretty women in my life. <laughs> there were all these Brazilian women and they're all greeting you, they're, you know, and every time they walk up, they didn't even know me and I'm like getting little kisses on the cheeks, you know, I'm like, wow. And we don't realize culturally all around the world, that's a very normal thing to greet one another with a kiss. It's a, it's a greeting of warmth and of friendship. And uh, we know that kisses can be very intimate between lovers. And now we see a kiss being turned to the signal of ultimate betrayal. When I kiss him, that's the one you need to take and kill. There's nothing quite as sad as when the ones that we love who have kissed us become the ones who betray us. And I know right now, I know people in this room, I know some of the betrayals that you've been through. There's some of you here that even right now, you're dealing with a broken heart, a shattered heart, because the ones who used to kiss you put a knife in your back. But God wants to redeem the kiss, right? You know, there's a scripture, a couple of different places in the Bible where the word worship is used in the Hebrew language, and the word worship means to kneel down and to kiss. And the idea is one of intimate worship, where we're kissing God, literally kissing God. And the beautiful thing about Jesus' death on the cross is it takes this cursed kiss of betrayal and makes it a kiss of restoration. He restores us. Judas made his ultimate decision. He was actually unredeemable, irredeemable. He could not be saved because he once and for all time rejected the Lord. But our kisses can be redeemed. Maybe you're the betrayer. And I'll tell you, every one of us in this room at some time in our life have really done wrong to somebody. We've really hurt somebody. We've betrayed people. We've talked about them. We've lied about them. We've disparaged their characters, right? Or if we haven't said it, we've thought it. We've had murder in our hearts. We've betrayed in our hearts. And it's so good for us to recognize that God can touch that. And heal that and give us the ability to once again kiss the people that we've hurt in a way that redeems them. Amen? And that takes me to the last one. Oh, I got to hurry here. Broken bread and wine. A memorial of sacrificial love. Matthew 26, 26 through 28 says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup. And when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Isn't it powerful to end there? We've just seen a litany of sins. We've seen the deepest, darkest sins of betrayal, right, and, and denial, We've looked at these things. We've looked at our bold proclamations of loyalty. And, but now we come to this scene. We come to this moment where we have the opportunity to receive new covenant forgiveness. 
broken bread and wine provides a memorial to the love of Jesus for us. Jesus gave us a material, physical staple of life to remember His body and blood and what, it, what He did for us. We're reconciled and we're forgiven. We have a new covenant agreement with God and all is well because of bread and wine, because bread and wine represent body and blood. All is well. We partake of this memorial and we know I can look in the face of God and I don't find a scowl and I don't find anger and I don't find displeasure and I don't find a face turned away in disgust. I find embracing pleasure, joy. I see a God who enjoys me and loves me and has said favored one and it's called grace. It's not earned. It can't be bought. There's no price that can pay for it. It's free, yet immeasurably expensive. And it's offered freely, and it's called grace. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Broken bread and wine provide the cleansing and the redemption for our selling out in betrayal and denial. Our pride, our kisses, makes them all right. This one memorial eclipses all the rest. It takes all the other memorials and brings them underneath it like an umbrella and then washes them away and redeems them and makes them new. That's the gospel. I love this quote by Timothy Keller. Here's the gospel. You're more sinful than you ever dared believe. You're more loved than you ever dared hope. Jesus forgives your denial, your betrayal, your sin, your failure, etc., 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 Jesus wants to restore you today through His poured out blood and broken body. If you trust what He did for you, you can be restored today, right now. 